Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. And today, as usual, we have a great panel with two of my fellow Lincoln Project co-founders, communication strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, thanks for making the time again. It is great to be here, Ron. Thank you. And conservative attorney, George Conway. George, it's always great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we are going to take a look at the Supreme Court's decision to reject a request to overturn Joe Biden's victory in Pennsylvania. We're going to look at the Texas Attorney General asking the Supreme Court to negate 10 million votes, wait for it, in four states that are not Texas, And the New York Times reporting that the Trump administration declining to purchase additional doses of Pfizer's vaccine at the end of the summer. So let's start with the Pennsylvania case. On Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a one-line, unsigned order that allowed the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision to throw out a lawsuit challenging a 2019 law that expanded mail-in voting in the state to stand. The lawsuit was spearheaded by Republican Congressman Mike Kelly, He was joined by two Republican candidates for federal and state office. They asked Pennsylvania to throw out over two and a half million votes cast by mail or to direct the state legislature to name their own slate of electors when the Electoral College meets on December 14th, which is right around the corner. The law they were challenging is called Act 77, which allowed for no excuse absentee voting for state and federal elections. And this was passed all the way back in 2019 with bipartisan support. On November 28th, The Pennsylvania Supreme Court unanimously dismissed the lawsuit because the Republicans had waited too long to challenge the law. So, George, let's start here. Can you walk us through why they chose to bring this lawsuit after the election and why the state Supreme Court would have found that too late? They chose to bring it after the election because they didn't like the results Mm -hmm. in the presidential race. And in fact, the law, when it was written and passed in 20. 19 before the pandemic, incidentally, that parties had 180 days to challenge it. And what the court in Pennsylvania did, what the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania did was said that, well, whatever the merits of this case, you brought it too late. There's a doctrine, a legal doctrine called latches that applies in many circumstances, my private commercial disputes, not just in public disputes or electoral disputes, that basically says that if you fail to assert your rights and do so in a manner that prejudices the other side, you lose. And the whole point here was that the election had already happened. Everybody relied on the validity of Act 77. Millions of Pennsylvanians voted and the vote, it's done. You, you waited too long. You, these, there's nothing about these claims the logical, that logically required you to wait for the election to take place. The argument that the plaintiffs were making in the case was that Act 77 violated the Constitution of the state of Pennsylvania. The argument was that the Pennsylvania Constitution allows what's called absentee voting and allows absentee voting for people who have some excuse not to be present at the polling place on election day. But the way that the constitutional provision is written is that it says, you know, the legislature may or the the state of Pennsylvania may do this. It doesn't preclude other forms of voting. And that was essentially why in other cases, Um, And I think in other litigation, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court held that that 77 was consistent with the Constitution. The plaintiffs in the case that went up to the Supreme Court argued that, well, because the Constitution of the state of Pennsylvania talks about 
absentee voting with excuses, it therefore precludes what is effectively absentee voting or mail-in voting without excuses. That's the counter side of the argument. And problem was for them was that the general rule is unless the legislature in Pennsylvania, I think the courts held that the legislature has the power to do something, even, you know, as long as it's not prohibited by the state constitution, there was nothing specifically that prohibited. They also argued that the fact that there had been a constitutional amendment that would allow this kind of mail-in voting had also been proposed and is, I think, slated to go to the voters of Pennsylvania next year, that that shows that the legislature knew that what it was doing wasn't constitutionally permissible. But there really was nothing inconsistent with seeking that if you wanted to just make sure that the constitution of the state of Pennsylvania was sort of up to date with current methods of voting. So that's that's what happened. The problem when they took it to the Supreme Court of the United States for the Trump people or for the congressman who, who, who brought the case was that the last stop for any issue of state law is a state's highest court. The Supreme Court of the United States does not exist to opine on matters of state law. And in fact, it has no power to do so. All it can do is say that a state law is inconsistent with federal law in which case the supremacy clause of the Constitution will strike down the state law, or that the state law is otherwise incompatible with the Constitution. And they had no serious argument that there was a federal issue in the case. And in fact, precisely because the state court decided the issue on a question of latches, uh, which is a classic, classic state law issue, it's common law, um, there really, again, there was no federal issue, and that's the reason why the Supreme Court wouldn't grant relief. They only grant relief if there's a likelihood that certiorari would be granted, that they would take the case and hear the case, and a likelihood that people bringing the case to the Supreme Court would win. And there was no such likelihood, and that's why there were no votes to grant a stay. Uh, at least there were no recorded dissents from the refusal to grant a stay, and that was the end of the case. So I think you're getting at this, and we've talked about it briefly before on other episodes, but can you remind our listeners to help them understand how much leeway states have to decide rules in their own elections? And essentially, what's the constitutional argument against a bipartisan election reform bill, which is geared toward allowing more people to vote? Or, or I think what you're saying is there isn't one. There is not one. Um, the states have wide leeway in the manner of conducting elections, and they're really only constrained by specific constitutional provisions like the Equal Protection Clause and by statutes such as the Voting Rights Act mm -hmm. to protect against discrimination in right, voting. Right. Other than that, the sort of the methodology by which uh, states hold their elections is largely left to the states. So, and, and I'm leaving apart, there's a federal law that deals with absentee voting for members of the military and for people who are in the service of, you know, uh, diplomats in the service of the United States. That's separate. So states basically can, you know, states want to have absentee voting. Um, they can have it. If they don't want to have it, that's also okay. And they can have mail-in voting as much as they like. They can put polling places wherever they like. Uh, with the only restriction being that if you manipulate the polling places, again, like to discriminate against certain um, protected classes of voters, like minorities, that would be different. But by and large, states get to do what they want. So Jennifer, let's step back here from the technicality of the law and just think about this on principle. How should we be thinking about these candidates attempting to disenfranchise essentially two and a half million voters? Right. And that's what we should be clear about. That's what that's exactly what this does. They're telling two and a half million voters uh, that your vote doesn't count if, through no fault of your own, through no fault of the law. They followed the rules. You're, you're, right. Your your vote doesn't count. So this move is entirely and transparently political. And one of the ways that you can judge when these things come up, is it is this for real or is it just political, is to look at it and say, if this benefited the other side, would the side that's bringing the challenge still bring the challenge? And the answer, of course, is no. It's political. This is about Donald Trump losing, not wanting to lose. And it's not, I, you know, at, at the beginning of all this insanity, I would say this is about Donald Trump trying to overturn a legitimate election. I think Donald Trump has fully accepted. He understands he is not 
no longer going to be president on January 20th. This is now about Donald Trump, you know, sowing a landscape that will allow him to continue to raise money off of naive supporters for the rest of his life and allow him to um, have a thing, you know, a, a concept, a theory upon which he can build some sort of, whether it's a media operation or a political action operation, it's, it's, it's a foundation upon which he's going to be able to build an income for himself for the rest of his life. That's how craven this is. That's how completely transparently just political this is. It's about serving Donald Trump's personal, narcissistic, financial ambitions. That's all this is. And voters need to understand that because the next step outside of that is all of the Republicans around Donald Trump who are supporting him. Why are they doing it? What do they get out of it? Right? So start asking yourself, who's putting their name on this? Who's financing it? Who's strategizing it? Who, who at the RNC, who in the United States Senate is all, are, are all, um, supporting and empowering and helping with this? What is their motivation? Um, to disenfranchise and suppress uh, the legal, uh, legitimate votes of the American people. So essentially, it's not just legal pretense. It's actually pretense for a much larger fraudulent enterprise, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if fraudulent is exactly the right word. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're probably legally raising all of that money, but there is no question that it is corrupt. I always, and, and George, you know, is a great um, legal professor for all of us, but I always distinguish between criminal and corrupt. I always think corrupt has to do with what's your intention and what you're trying, what you're trying to do, regardless of whether it might still be within the bounds of the law. Okay, let's turn to the Texas case now. On Tuesday, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton asked the U.S. Supreme Court to block four battleground states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, from voting in the Electoral College. So he argued that officials in those states used the threat of the pandemic as a pretext for unconstitutionally changing vote rules in the election. Paxton asked the court to vacate the state's certification of Biden victories and order state legislators to assign the state's electoral votes. And George is going to tell us what that means in a minute. On Wednesday, 17 states notified the Supreme Court that they support Paxton's lawsuit. And Trump, for his part, also filed a motion to intervene in the case, quote, in his personal capacity as a presidential candidate. So, George, this is a bit confusing. And I'd like for you to unpack this for our listeners because it sounds really odd that. A, the attorney general from Texas is trying to intervene in what's going on in other states. So can you walk us through what the legal argument for this is and how sound it is and exactly what he's asking the court to do? The lawsuit is absurd on multiple levels from the most basic procedural ones to the substance of it. It's got so many problems. It's just overwhelming. It is, it is really just a piece of garbage. I mean, the first problem they have is the Supreme Court doesn't normally hear cases as a court of first instance. You normally have to file in a trial court, courts that hold trials and hear evidence, and then you appeal it to an intermediate appellate court, and then you go to the Supreme Court of the United States. That's in the federal system. You can do that from the state court system. You go to the state Supreme Court after you go from the trial court to the intermediate appellate state court to the state Supreme Court, then to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court, in rare circumstances, hears original cases okay, as a court of first instance. And one of the circumstances where it can do so, but doesn't, at least on the Supreme Court's current case law, doesn't have to, is case controversies involving states where states sue other states. And that's specifically in Article 3 of the Constitution. The court only likes to do that when for unique kinds of litigation that can't be resolved by private parties bringing suits in other courts. Example would be a dispute over a state where, where a state line is, which sometimes happens when rivers move over time. The course of a river may change and there may be a dispute, a boundary dispute between states. Or riparian rights. They're off like there have been litig- there's been litigation about, you know, who how much water states can take from the Colorado River, for example. Mm. And 
those are very unique disputes that can only occur between states. This is a, is a dispute that can be resolved through candidates bringing lawsuits in individual states or um, election officials bringing lawsuits about what their authority is or voters who claim that they're disenfranchised can bring lawsuits. All the kinds of plaintiffs that we've seen bring these various pro-Trump lawsuits um, as to which the record is now, by one count, one win and 55 losses. 55. So, the fact that the, the great... <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just, just, you know, the last time it was one in 43, we're up to 55 now. Yeah, the elite legal strike force, by intervening in the Supreme Court, actually has undermined Paxton's case. Shows that, hey, I'm a private party, President Trump. I have these rights. I can sue. And that actually undermines the claim that the states should be able to litigate this in the Supreme Court as a matter of first impression or as a matter of first in, as a trial court. So that's one problem. The next problem is the one that you alluded to, Ron, which is how can states sue other states for how those other states conduct their elections? The answer is they can't. No one has ever done this before. It's completely insane. Are we going to have presidential elections every four years where, you know, 25 states sue another 25 states and the 20 other, other 25 states sue them back saying that, oh, well, there would have been even more votes for our candidate or what, what, what is this? This is insane. You, you don't have standing to the, the states do not have standing to challenge what other states do. It's, it's just, there's just no basis for that. If you get to the merits of this case, the allegations in this case, it's basically a Cuisinart of all the crazy accusations that have been made by um, Trump and by Sidney Powell and by Rudy Giuliani. I mean, some of these, some of these allegations, they didn't even bother really to make in lower courts because they were so insane. And they only chose to do the do them in these fake legislative hearings, like the one in Pennsylvania. But it's just a grab bag of every random accusation. Oh, somebody, you know, we had only four people in the room while they were counting votes, or Dominion voting machines. All this crazy stuff is just dumped into this complaint in, before the Supreme Court. And they've got this crazy idea that they, they argue that, they, oh, there was like a one in quadrillion chance that, that Joe Biden could win given the lead that Donald Trump had at two in the morning on election night. Um, as though Detroit and Grand Rapids have the same number of Democratic <laughs> and Republican voters, as though mail-in votes and voting in person were equally balanced between Republicans and Democrats, when we all know that the polls consistently showed that Democrats were more likely to vote by mail. So they're basically, they're treating the Supreme Court like it's a bunch of nine morons. Is this whole strategy, these 55 losses in one win, is this bad lawyering or... Is this their attempt to abuse the legal system to create the impression for people who don't know better that there's a lot of bad things happening intentionally? This is like the question, the other question that gets asked is, is Trump crazy or is he lying? And the answer right. is both. Oh, yeah. And it's also mm. both that there's bad lawyering and that they're, they're trying to just create a big stink for public relations purposes. Um, the two go hand. The two are going okay. hand in hand. Good lawyers would not bring these lawsuits. Good lawyers would not um, embarrass themselves like this. Um, politicians like Paxton, who think they may have a, uh, I guess, are trying to preserve their future in MAGA land, um, will bring these lawsuits. State states attorney general who want to be governor of, governors of red states and think that the that Trump has riled up the base sufficiently that they need to be, they need to do this in order that they not be called out as being some kind of a rhino, the way the president is attacking um, a very conservative Republican governor in 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 Georgia just now. He just tweeted at at at, at Kemp again. Um, they they they're doing it for basically political grandstanding purposes. And as as Jennifer points out, they're you know, the whole effort 
by Trump. I, I think he truly does think that he won because he's delusional. I do think he convinced he thinks that if he thinks hard enough and tries hard enough, he could still win, even though that's delusional. But he is also wanting to create for his own mind and in the minds of other people the notion that he, it, this was stolen from him so that he will always be able to assert that and so that he will never, ever have to admit that he lost. Yeah, he doesn't have to say yeah. he lost. He gets to say he was cheated. Yeah, exactly, Jennifer. And you saw him start to do that months ago as the poll numbers got bad for him. He started saying, this is going to be the most fraudulent election in history. And he started it. That's the reason why he has started attacking mail-in voting, even though some of his operatives in certain states like Florida said, listen, uh, listen, we need mail-in voting. Our, you know, the older voters want to vote by mail and a lot, and a lot of them vote for Trump. So Jennifer, this is bigger than a single AG trying to help Trump, right. obviously. We have attorneys general from 18 states trying to throw out legally cast ballots to try to steal the election for him. How should we be thinking about how the Republican Party has fallen in line behind Trump after the election? Because I think earlier this year, throughout the year, we had been assuming, we had been hoping, I should say, that upon his utter defeat the Republican Party might begin to retreat from the, you know, the grasp that he has had on them. And, and that's not happening. The opposite is happening. It's fallen behind, it, it, they've fallen completely in line with this. So how are you thinking about that? So what we know now is that the, uh, the Republican Party has chosen, because to your point, let's step before, you could go yeah. before the election and say that they've got some misplaced party loyalty, that they think this is how they can win an election. They have all these political party partisan things that play into leading up to an election that some people that you could use to excuse them. Mm -hmm. Not me, not you, not the mm -hmm. Lincoln Project, mm -hmm. but that people were using to excuse what was happening. Right. Now we're on the other side of the election. The president has lost. So now the entire Republican Party, its leadership, its elected officials, like attorney generals, um, are choosing. This is a choice now. They are choosing to engage in corrupt practices that hurt the American people, that hurt America, in order to somehow hold on to what they see as the power that comes with preserving the Trump base right. and the Trump messaging in the Republican Party. But let's step back yeah. a couple steps even from there. Let's go back to what was, what was my answer to the first question you asked me <laughs> on the first lawsuit, right? If the other side benefited from this, would the Republicans still sign on to this? No, of course not, because it's corrupt, right. because it's wrong, because it's, it flies in the face of free and fair elections, right? So what else is happening here that, that, that exposed the Republicans' true intentions? The Republicans have built their a much of their political operation over the last decade, at least, if not more, in other ways, on the idea of states' rights. It's, it's all about states' rights. Inde we're independent. We're, um, you know, the, the federal government's too big, uh, too expensive, too, too far-reaching into, you know, get them out of our lives, get them out of our pocketbooks, get them out of... So, because we're, you know, states' rights, we're all about, about that. Now, so what is this? This is 17 Republican-led states now stepping into this court case that would not only overturn a free and fair election, but where they're, you know, trying to make the argument that states have the right to tell other states <laughs> right. how to, you know, so it's just the most hypocritical, transparently um, political and immeasurably destructive thing yeah. I have ever seen in my life. And uh, again, up until now, there's a lot of political conversation and excuses and 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 strategic explanation that you could give to the um, to the Republicans' behavior. But from this point forward, every single thing that they do that is hypocritical and um, corrupt in its mindset and its nature is a conscious, intentional choice. Yes, so to remember that about the Republicans going forward. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They know what they're doing and they're doing it on purpose. 
I want to ask you both in just a moment about our institutions and and the consequences of all of this. But before we do, George, you mean, you mean which one of us belongs in an institution? <laughs> I want to I, I want to cast the first vote on that one, <laughs> George. Uh, so before we leave this point, at this stage in the process, what avenues, if any, are still open to Trump's legal team? And I ask that because of all of the listeners that we have who have so much anxiety over this extremely tenuous process that it feels like we're all we're hanging on the edge every single moment. You know, I've done a couple of explainer episodes about the Electoral College and the process from you know November 3rd to Inauguration Day. But legally speaking, is there anything left for them to do? And if so, what is it? Nothing. There's nothing they can do at this point. And the reason why there's nothing they can do at this point is that the states that matter here, the states that Trump was contesting, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, they have all certified their elections. They have all certified that the Biden-Harris slates in their states are the legally chosen electors for president and vice president of the United States. And not only that, they have sent their official certificates. They're called certificates of ascertainment Mm -hmm. because the states are ascertaining who their electors are. They have sent those certificates to the archivist of the United States, and they were required to do that under federal law. Title III, Section 5 of the United States Code provides that if they provide those certificates to, if they make those certifications six days before the electors are required to vote, which is they're going to vote next Monday, December 14th. If they, if those certificates are signed, if the certifications are made by six days before December 8th, which was um, this past, uh, which was December 8th. Yep. Tuesday. Then those certifications are, quote, conclusive, close quote, in the counting of the electoral votes by Congress. We're done. So that means there can't, there's there's, no, no, Congress has no power. The courts have no power to look behind those certifications. The statute provides that they are conclusive under the Constitution. So, um, so so even if they try to cause a scene, they they can't do it on that. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the Supreme Court in, in this Texas case to basically enjoin the certifications to get these states to uncertify. And the court's never going to do that. Never going to do that. And, and the relief in that case, to go back to that, the result of uncertifying those elections would be to basically invalidate those elections. And that's actually what they're saying. Don't count those electoral votes. That is not going to happen. No court is ever going to do that. It's too late. It's done. No court is going to grant them any form of relief between now and December 14th. And those electors are going to meet in their respective state capitals as required by the Constitution and by federal law. And they are going to vote 306 to 232 for Joe Biden to become president of the United States. It's done. It's just a formality now, really. Can I ask George a question? A quick please, one. Please. So, George, I, I obviously I get it. I'm with you. But and I, and as I listen to you talk about, they have no recourse. There's nothing else they can do. I mean, none of the 55 losses, none of the lawsuits, none of the attempts that they made so far have been legitimate or credible or gone anywhere at all. So, after December 14th, when the electoral college is is certified and they're official and done. Is there any court that would even accept? Because I, you can't assume that Trump's lawyers are going to look at this and say, okay, we've, we've exhausted all of our legal resources. They exhausted all their legal resources, you know, a month ago and they're still going. I don't, I don't know what they, what, what are they going to do? Enjoin the electors from casting their votes? This is what, (laughs) I mean, are they going to enjoin or are they going to have a court order Congress to count the votes some other, some way other than what the, certificates of the vote say? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, no, I mean, I think the most you may see after next week will be an effort um, on the floor of the Congress on December 6th, when they convene at 1 p.m., when they convene to count the votes to, you know, there'll be motions made on the floor to count the votes some other way than legally required. I mean, you know, Jim Jordan is making noises to that effect. I don't know what they possibly could have in mind, but none of it is 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 remotely reasonable or legal. So we have 
all here enjoyed some cathartic laughter about how farcical this whole thing is. Because if we, you know, if you can't laugh about this, then it's actually kind of terrifying. And we've talked a lot about how well institutions have held up over the last four years on this podcast, uh, particularly with Ann Applebaum, who was, you know, just gave an incredible interview on, you know, what it looks like when authoritarianism takes hold in a democracy. And we're seeing that kind of play out in the courts. Can you both talk a little bit about how confident you are that these institutional safeguards will continue to hold up, not just in the next month, I think we've covered that, but beyond the Trump presidency? Yeah, I'm actually much more confident that they will today than I was the day before the election. I am so encouraged in particular by the conduct of election officials in Georgia for example, Republican officials who have um, every every benefit uh, that would come to them from protecting and empowering Republican chicanery and all of this, um, but who stood firm, who spoke up, who spoke out, who named names, you know, they, they uh, uh, Loeffler and Purdue, President, you know, Trump, they, these guys, um, and I think that encourages me that we have a, and the other thing that encourages me, frankly, um, has been that some of the decisions out of these courts. These are not Democratic judges or all Obama appointed judges that, you know, our judicial system is functioning properly. Uh, our, our election system, uh, we, we heard from Chris Krebs was the most secure and, and safeguarded, you know, process we've ever had. Like all of the things that we were so worried about crumbling under the force of Trump have stood firm and that's because of the individuals who have uh, you know have been in those positions whether they're elected people or longtime um, folks uh, like um, like Chris Krebs the institutions are sound and their foundations are strong and I think that as long as people as people like that continue to conduct themselves in that manner one the institutions institutions will remain but two more importantly the people will be able to regain their faith in them and that we the people become the defenders of those institutions and and I think that that's what we saw happen in this whole process it doesn't mean that I don't think that they are vulnerable I, I think that's one of the things we learned here, Ron, is that democracy, freedom, constitutional leadership are always vulnerable. They're always yeah. vulnerable. That's yeah. it's on us. We can't depend even on the president of the United States. Sometimes it has to be on us. We, the people. George, what's your take on all this? I never doubted that the institutions would hold. So I'm about the same as I feeling the same as I did before the election. My feeling about how the election would play out in terms of the vote counting and the litigation. I always felt that at the end of the day, if if Joe Biden won he the the election fair fair and square, he there was nothing that was going to be able to take it away from him. The only issue might happen that that, that the only thing that I saw that might be difficult would be a situation where the election came down to one state and the vote margin was minuscule as it was in Florida in 2000. And that just didn't happen here. The margins, the margins were too great. Biden has a 74 vote electoral cushion, which means you'd have to flip 37 votes to get to a tie. The margins were simply too great. 80,000 in Pennsylvania, 150,000 in Michigan. And right there, that's 36 electoral votes right there. It just wasn't close enough for the institutions to be so pressured that uh, quirky things might happen or bad things might happen. Though I'm now more disturbed than I was before the election about the attitudes of segments of the public. This continual campaign by Trump and his enablers to call the results into question, um, I think, is having a toll. And it's there is going to be some segment of the population that is going to actually and does now actually believe this stuff. I never had a doubt that Trump would, you know, deny that he lost for the rest of his life. I always thought that I was going to happen. If you'd asked me that six months ago, I would have said that. But I never really perceived, I never really could envision 
the degree to which this is filtering down into the body politic. And it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, it reminds me, frankly, of the stab in the back legend. There's a nice German word for it because it's from Germany that took hold in the Weimar Republic after World War I. This kind of conspiracy theorizing that posits that the country has been essentially uh, betrayed is very, very poisonous and very, very dangerous. And I am not sure what we, we can do to overcome that. I mean, you have the president now attacking Fox News and saying that Fox News is you know, not Trumpy enough and directing people to watch Newsmax and OAN and Newsmax the other day had higher ratings than Fox for a program. And this is the kind of garbage that they're spewing out about electoral fraud. People are gravitating to sources of information or more precisely disinformation that tell them what they want to believe and not what the facts actually are. And I don't know how healthy a democracy we can have when some significant portion of the body politic is divorced from reality. And consider this, Ron and George, up until a certain point, we kept looking at this saying, the Republican Party cannot survive. The Republican Party cannot go on. They cannot be a legitimate party. They cannot be a credible voice. They cannot, if they're going to, you know, empower and embrace this. But that's not actually what's happening. Republican Party so far is going on at full speed. What we are going to have going forward is if we, a, theoretically at this point, a, a two-party system, two major parties where only two parties carry the influence and one of them is fully fed by what George is talking about, where that's what this major influential party is. That's what it is. It, you know, it is conspiracy theory. It is dishonesty. It is mistrust. You know, their whole political strategy and messaging and operation is going to be what George just talked about. And at the same time, they are going to be one of only two truly influential political efforts in this country. So consider that. Okay, let's turn to COVID, finally. On Monday, the New York Times broke the story that Pfizer offered the Trump administration the chance to secure supplies beyond the 100 million doses that they agreed to sell to the federal government as part of a $1.9 billion deal over the summer. According to people familiar with the talks, the administration never made the deal And that failure may have allowed other countries to take our place in line. Pfizer is now negotiating with the administration to provide additional doses of the vaccine, but they may not be able to guarantee more than the initial 100 million doses, uh, which would only inoculate 50 million people since you need two doses before next June. So we're looking at the worst pandemic in 100 years, and there's been this race toward a vaccine but now it might take longer for people to get vaccinated. So what would lead the Trump administration away from this deal, George? I have no idea what happened here. I mean, they made a deal. The Trump administration did make a deal with Pfizer. What they just didn't do was they do what other countries have done, which is make you you buy X number of doses and then you have an option for X number of doses more in case you need them, in case you can't fill your needs through other manufacturers of other comparable equivalent vaccines. So I, I, I find it absolutely inexplicable. They haven't really put forth a justification for what they failed to do. Um, they simply are saying, oh yeah, we'll have, enough, we'll have enough vaccine for everyone because there are other manufacturers. Well, that remains to be seen. And the notion, it's a little disturbing to see that you know, the, the, the Pfizer vaccine, let's leave apart the question of approval. I understand that, that, that the FDA has to do what it has to do. But we're already seeing other countries, we've seen, you know, Britain already ramping up mm-hmm. the administration of the Pfizer vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I guess we'll probably do that here soon when the FDA gets to approve it, which will probably be in a matter of days. But the notion that this is the first vaccine that we're seeing being administered in the West and and we somehow failed to buy enough of it. Um, that's just 
disturbing. I don't. It, it's inexplicable, and there are a lot of things that the Trump administration has done and failed to do over the past uh, nine months that is um, inex- that are inexplicable. And I think there should, at some point in the future, after we get all this behind us, there should be some kind of an accounting for all of that. Yeah, Jennifer, what is your take on this? I mean, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in the White House for the last four years so that we could answer these kinds of questions in a, a hundred different ways? You know, what really happened? Yeah. Oh, by the way, just speaking of that, speaking of that, the, the, the Biden administration announced that it's essentially having the White House fumigated on January 20th. <laughs> <laughs> so there will be no flies just, left on the just, wall. Just in case, in case, in case any pests are left behind. So oh no, this is a real story. They're going to, they're basically going to have somebody you know, spraying the entire White House to get rid of every, you know, COVID. Every, oh, yeah, and and every Corona germ left. Yeah. yeah. Right. Good. Right. You know, that's a good, if, if I was, if I was the, if I was the Bidens, I mean, I'd be moving in on January 22nd, you know, take, take some time, get that place cleaned up. I think that what is unfortunately probably the truth here is that it's just another in a series of conscious decisions made by this president that has put the lives of the American people at risk without any care or concern or compassion from him. Um, you know, I, I can totally see a world where Donald Trump and his closest advisors, this, you know, Stephen Miller's of the world, um, were deciding that if they, if they bought too many vaccines, that it would look bad, that they didn't want to take an action that uh, made it look like they thought that the pandemic was real Mm. or that it was going Mm -hmm. to uh, be as devastating as it has turned out to be or, uh, you know, you can't, you can't say it's a, it's a hoax and then buy enough vaccines to vaccinate everybody. (laughs) Exactly. You know, exactly. Like I can see and think about the timing mid to late summer. Like they Uh were all tied up in knots. They were in full denial mode. They were in full denial mode. Um, and so, I mean, if, if we learn, you know, if someday we're going to find paperwork somewhere on some secret server in the basement of the White House and find out that, you know, there was somebody sitting in the room saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. And somebody else saying, don't do it, don't do it. I, I mean, it just, it's just, um, it, it, it is a horrific thing to live in a moment where I actually believe that the president of the United States could have made this decision from a, um, a, and, you know, a political ambitious position. Yeah. On Tuesday, Trump announced an executive order to apply his America first philosophy to vaccine distribution. So now Pfizer already has contracts with foreign governments. And Trump said that he could invoke the Defense Production Act to force Pfizer to increase production and give the federal government priority on upcoming orders. George, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know what merit this has, but what potential legal battles might there be if he tries to block the export of the vaccine? Well, I really, I can't speak to the legality of that. I think it would be, it, I think it would cause an enormous stink with friendly allied countries that made contracts with Pfizer that might not be filled or filled in the in, in adequate time because we just you know to make up for our mistakes essentially confiscate the vaccine that's going to the other countries i, I just think that that it, it looks terrible and i think it would be disturbing to see that and you know it also raises the other question why wasn't the defense production act invoked earlier um, right. to provide more ppe for hospital workers and for citizens. I mean, there you're were many arguments. You're stealing that the, my answer, George. Well, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. It's, right? yeah. that's it's, the, it's the obvious question. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, had he done this eight months ago, we wouldn't be in this situation, would we? We'd be in a, playing on a whole different field. If eight months ago, he had aggressively activated the Defense Production Act for a whole host of other items that could have helped us as a nation prevent the um you know, the, the devastation that has been wrought by this. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast already talking about how much he's damaged the U.S. in, in the eyes of the world stage. How, I mean, this would certainly just add to that, right? I mean, it would be incredibly damning for our standing in the world. Absolutely. I mean, ask John Cipher that yeah. question. Can you imagine John oh, responding to that? I mean, it, it's as if Donald Trump hasn't already done enough damage to our 
relationship with our allies, you know, to the coalition of allies around the world uh, and their ability to trust and depend on the United States. Can you imagine um, the United States coming forward now and saying your people can keep dying because our president screwed up last year? And so, I mean, unbelievably damaging. Yeah. And I'm certain, uh, you know, John would be able to lay this out in, in a much more articulate manner, but I'm certain damaging. As he has before. It was a great right. episode when he was on and, with the, yeah. And people should find that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, think about how that could play out and, and how, how could Russia, for example, Vladimir Putin, how could he manipulate and use that action to his benefit as he's trying to convince other parts of the Western world that they can trust him him more than they can trust us. Now that we are up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, let's look ahead briefly to next week. What stories and developments are you watching for, George? I'm looking forward to Monday's vote of the Electoral College. And I think that will, I think the reality of it will sink in for a lot more people who need to have that reality transmitted to them. And I think that's going to be a great moment for us now going forward. Here, here. Jennifer? I mean, I think we're all looking forward to seeing yeah. that happen, yeah. right? That that's uh, hopefully the anxiety we've experiencing will, you know, be pal- palpably less once that happens. Be um, I'm, yeah. I'm continuing to watch um, coronavirus infections. Um, and and deaths and losses and um, as we talk about you know how um, policy can shift once Joe Biden becomes president and the problems with this vaccine uh, we saw yesterday what I believe as many people uh, trusted sources I've seen now have suggested yesterday was the third deadliest day in the history of our country over three thousand lives were lost to the coronavirus yesterday and. Um, the devastation and the pain and the burden that that continues to, um, you know, to leave in the hearts of Americans and on our shoulders in so many ways is, is something that I, I'm looking, watching very closely. My, my biggest fear um, is what is the loss that we can experience as a country it, just from that avenue alone between now and January 20th. And, and now that we are coming to an end of the incubation period following the Thanksgiving exactly. get together, we are in, I mean, some of these days are the deadliest single days in American history. Worse than 9-11, yeah. worse than Pearl Harbor, worse than you can go through all these things that have happened in the past. And we are now, and just to add to it, um, completely, uh, totally predictable and totally avoidable. Okay, before I let you both go, we have a listener question this week from Garrett Tagliabue. He writes, this may seem really trivial and elementary as a question, but I meant to ask this one before. Where and how do you guys all get your news? What are your trusted sources and methods of getting information these days in the environment we're in? Um, Jennifer, what, what do you do? Um, I probably access more news sources now than I ever have before in my life, because one of the things I have learned is that seeing a story in one place, no matter how credible I think that's, that might be, uh, isn't always enough. But I watch and I read CNN, the Washington Post, the New York Times, my local um, papers in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Union Leader, the um, Seacoast online, which is the, the you know, Gannett um, Seacoast Media Group. Um, and and well beyond that, you know, I, I read The Atlantic, I read The New Yorker. I, I mean, I can go through Bulwark, Bulwark online. You know? So as I'm both seeking access to news and understanding of it in the world, um, there's there, and there's more than that, you know, probably, I, I probably honestly access a dozen different sources to some degree or another every day now. George, what about you? Yeah, same here. Um, very similar um, consumption of a wide variety of information sources. And I use Twitter, um, scrolling through Twitter as a news feed to direct me to those stories. But again, you know, if somebody is tweeting something and asserting it as fact, unless that person is extremely reliable, like an extremely reliable journalist, you know, I, I will always look for like an underlying report. You know, sometimes, I, I, I mean, I look for an underlying report to see what well, what what's the factual basis for that because you can, sometimes things get get distorted as they pass through the internet, 
Uh, and I think it's important to sort of try, you know, by seeing a variety of sources and making judgments as to which ones are reliable over a course of a long period of time, and then triangulating among those sources uh, to, fig- to to learn what the facts are. I think that's the best way to inform oneself. I think the problem we've seen today with a lot of people is they just go on Facebook and some friend passes on some blog post or uh, a, you know, a a, a gateway pundit story and they just accept it as true and they don't look at any other sources. It just sounds good. It's like, oh, you know, it, it tells them that the people who they think are bad are bad and the people who they think are good are good. Um, without actually learning actual facts and where those facts come from. And that's how these conspiracy theories get launched. Uh, and you know where I never go for news? <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. I mean, let's be, yeah. never. I never take a link, a story, and anything yeah. from Facebook yeah. and assume that there is any reality or accuracy to it anymore. And again, to George's point, we are, you know, we see this on social media, on Facebook in particular, where people are sharing and repeating and believing that which echoes what they want to be true. Yeah. And it happens on both sides, uh, really. There was a serious, there was a long Twitter thread that somebody DM'd me and that seemed to be getting retweeted a lot today about how how could Mitch McConnell have won in Kentucky when he had an 18% approval rating and purporting to go through the various counties <laughs> and um, pointing out irregularities like he was winning counties that he never won before? And of course, the you know it, it's immediate. There was no corroboration of, of this right. woman's facts and, and, and also no really thought about what the counter arguments are. It wasn't vetted in a... In a, in a, in a by, uh, by editors or anything like that. And of course, the answer, the obvious answer is that um, some counties became more MAGA than before because that's what we saw in this election. And we saw polls going into November that basically showed McConnell's challenger didn't have a chance. So there really, it's, a, it's an unlikely story that there was some kind of a big fix in Kentucky. Yet somebody is... is passing that on and you know it's it's it just because one side is doing it doesn't mean that the other side should be doing it either yeah and you know when george talks about exactly what you described george and this is like this is a, a show for another day you could yeah. spend the whole show on yeah, it sure george is describing professional misinformation right is what he's doing you know that's how it works whether the source is foreign or political you know in, in internal to our own country that is professional misinformation and people have to be able to de- to develop the filter to recognize it as they're reading it yeah and garrett and uh all of our listeners should be assured that on this podcast we triple check all of the information with credible journalistic publications and sources before we bring it to you because we take this very seriously. George and Jennifer, thanks for being on today. It's so good to see you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Ron. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.